If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Listen carefully to the holy, infallible, inerrant word of God. In calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the, with the holy angels. And he said to them, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. The words of our Savior is before us. The directive concerning being a follower and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is laid out with his own tongue unto us, the church. We ask, O oh God, that we would be able to really understand and understand what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us, through thy spirit, the direction of being faithful servants and his, in his kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. I recently read a book <laughs> in which the author maintained that the biblical concept of discipleship was their key theme. The author correctly accented being a follower of Jesus Christ as an essential quality of discipleship. Yes, the word disciple correctly means being a pupil of a teacher. <clears throat> However, as I read the author's appeal that Christ's church needs to be more consistent about the idea of discipleship and the life of discipleship, something struck me. The author failed to deal with Christ's crucial discussion 
found in our text that is before you this morning about discipleship. How can one so strongly press the issue of discipleship without penetrating our Lord's central teaching about what it means to be his follower? The flaw is not unusual. In the modern era, numerous books have appeared about discipleship. It is a hot topic in the life of the church. One area where it becomes very popular is when someone views a new Christian in need of being mentored, tutored, modeled by a mature and more seasoned believer. What usually appears in Christian literature and in the church's instruction in an approach that constructs, that basically constructs bullet points from isolated biblical texts that provides step-by-step agenda for discipleship for one to follow. Sadly, when such a construct is manufactured, it too often overlooks the very core of what Jesus teaches on discipleship. If there is any question about this, I ask you this morning to sit back and really concentrate about everything that you believe discipleship is and compare, and I mean seriously compare, compare it to what Christ is teaching each of us in this text. Let me challenge you this morning with this statement. Be honest with yourself. How much are the words from our Savior here in verses 34 through 38 at the forefront of your daily Christian walk? You say you love Jesus. You say you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, how much are these verses from the lips of our Savior at the forefront of your conscious daily walk before him? Is it registering upon you where Mark has placed us in his narrative? He is placing you, his reader, on the hot seat. Remember, here at Caesarea Philippi, Mark has turned the page of his gospel in a new direction. For the first time, he has disclosed the messianic secret of the good news, the arrival of the gospel of God's kingdom. Yes, the true secretive purpose of Jesus' coming, his mission, and ministry into the creation is now stated to Peter and the disciples upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. What is that messianic secret? What did we point that out last week? It is the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, 
by the Jewish Sanhedrin, be killed, and after three days, rise again. Verse 31 of chapter 8. Yes, the messianic secret is the heart and soul of the gospel. Paul summarizes the gospel in this way. Can you yourself summarize what the gospel is? Well, here it is summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, if Christ has led the way about explaining the heart and soul of the gospel, now Christ continues teaching and training what it means to live, to live the gospel. The words of our Savior in our, pa in our passage this morning is the heart, the essential core of Christ's view of discipleship not found in any other teacher who has walked this earth. If you do not start with this passage, if you do not penetrate the unique instruction found in this passage, then the Christian does not comprehend what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How about it, congregation? Do we all know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Well, interestingly, as we begin, notice that Mark immediately directs our attention beyond just the disciples to include the crowd. If you remember from last week's message, we have noted that the crowd in the second section of Mark's gospel will not play as prominent a role as it did in the first section of Mark's gospel. But right here, we are told that Jesus is calling the crowd. He's calling the crowd directly to him along with his disciples. It should not be too difficult to understand what is going on here in terms of that. The reason the crowd is invited in this case to hear what Jesus is saying is because the picture here is how the church as a corporate body needs to understand the life of discipleship, not just the disciples. What Jesus is about to say is for all his followers, for the whole body of Christ's church. Hence, in this case, both the disciples and the crowd, who has a most sincere interest in Jesus, is notice the text is called by Jesus, his grace, to hear these essential words of discipleship. 
There is no beating around the bush here by our Savior. Jesus immediately addresses his audience. If, if anyone would come after me, the meaning here is clear. If anyone would follow after me is the idea here of the Greek. Jesus would follow after him. Jesus, it is imperative that the follower deny, refuse to acknowledge oneself, must disregard oneself, pay no attention to oneself. That's all in the meaning of the Greek here in this text of what our Savior is saying. Let's put it another way. As a follower of Jesus, you are willing to say in your heart constantly no to yourself, but yes to the will of Christ. As one scholar states, it is the radical denunciation of all self-idolatry and the attempts to establish your life upon the dictates of your life. Another way to speak in compliance to the Greek text is this. Jesus calls for a radical abandonment. I love that term. Radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. Oh, congregation, how many so-called Christians have twisted the words of Jesus to still serve one's own identity and self-determination. Jesus is not talking about denying something for yourself in his command. For example, you do not say to Christ, Okay, Lord, here is my application of self-denial. I'm going to give up chocolates for a year. For Lent. I'm not going to eat any chocolate. Or I'm going to give up this particular food. Or this particular beverage. Or this particular activity. You can go on and on. That is not what Jesus is addressing. Nor is he addressing or endorsing in the Roman Catholic tradition the literal sensual involvement of the seven deadly sins during Mardi Gras. And Carvanel and Carvanel, only to then deny such sensual pleasures during the weeks of Lent. To repeat and make sure we are clear as to what Jesus is saying, it is not the denial of something to the self, but it is the denial of the self.
Let me repeat that. It is not the denial of something to the self, but it is the denial of the self itself. Perhaps this can be helpful, a helpful illustration. As you came to worship Christ, Christ, this morning with fellow believers here as we assemble, you denied yourself by leaving your own self-imposed dictates about the importance of self or attention to self at the door of the church to enter fully into union with Christ alone and to unite with those of whom Christ has called to be one in union with him. Let the Apostle Paul define clearly and precisely the application of Christ's words here. Wonderfully, wonderfully, there are children here and parents here who are involved in the co-op. And in this, Lord's, and this week, I was, had the opportunity to speak on their verse, a verse of the co-op that they're learning this year, which is surrounded with the servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Well, in that passage, there it is. There is what self-denial is all about. Paul remarks to the Philippian church in his incredible discourse about the servanthood of Christ, how we are to model the pattern of Christ's own self-denial. What does he tell the Philippian church to do? How is the application of the Sermon on the Mount coming home into the Philippian church? There's to be no selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Do not give attention to only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In this way, the church will be so blessed in Christ to have a people complete in joy, Share the same love. Share the same mind. Yes, indeed, we will have the mind of Christ dominating the body of Christ, the church. If I may, allow me to invoke another statement by Paul to assist us in understanding how to deny ourselves in order to live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in his second epistle to them, take every thought captive. You have, take every thought you have to the captivity of Christ, your Redeemer. You see, it's not about you. It's not about me. 
Is it really registering upon your heart and mind what denial means as a true disciple of Jesus Christ? But Jesus is not finished, is he? Jesus now employs another imperative. What more can he require of us to be his disciple? <laughs> he already has demanded that his followers deny, disregard oneself in cleaving to him by faith. Now he demands in the imperative that a disciple take up their own cross. That is, a disciple must be prepared and willing to suffer unto death to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is underlining that being a disciple of Jesus may require a death march, a life that ends in martyrdom, Death in the hands of those who hate the gospel. To make sure the listener to Jesus is getting what the cost of being a disciple is, he essentially doubles down and gets quite direct about those who focus more upon themselves, fascinated with their own personality, their own image, their own relevance and importance in the world and in the church. Christ promises that their life will be lost. destroyed, punished. But then comes the contrast. Can we handle the contrast for those willing to lose their life, take the death march of martyrdom for the sake of Jesus and the gospel and the good news? Their life will be delivered from the evil of the world that persecutes them. The contrast that Jesus is outlining here for discipleship is clear, is it not? His words have eternal meaning and setting. If your life is about establishing a name for yourself, then you will fall under the eternal judgment of the Son of Man. You are part of what Christ describes as an adulterous and sinful generation. Verse 38. You are among those who are ashamed of Jesus in the gospel, and thus he will be ashamed of them when the Son of Man arrives at the second coming with glory. Yes, the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Oh, the internal struggle, the internal struggle of the sinful soul, pursuing profit, financial gain of the whole world, and yet forfeit, lose one soul. Think about it. 
after you die, what will you have in terms of financial gain to give to the Lord before his throne of justice? What will you have from the richest person in the world to the poorest person? You have nothing. You have nothing before the throne of justice. There's only one thing, one person, one act that can bring you justice before the throne of God's grace and judgment. And that's the person of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's it. That's all in which you must embrace by faith. In terms of the human characteristics of self-promotion, human pride, even if you have embraced Andy Warhol's famous quip for your own privileged status in history, his famous quip, everyone will have their own 15 minutes of fame. Nothing will be sufficient in order to gain your own soul for eternal redemption. The psalmist which we read this morning, that's why we read from the psalmist in verses 7 through 9 in Psalm 49 says it so clearly to us. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Very clear words in which Christ fulfills in his own words here in our text. Congregation, we are truly, we, if we are truly grasping the absolute importance of Christ's words about about discipleship, especially integrated into the context of the purpose and meaning of his ministry, remember the purpose And meaning, integrate, integrate. The Son of Man must suffer. Be rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Be killed and three days rise again. Then it is so sad to notice that too many Christians are setting their minds on earthly things instead of their union with Christ and the gospel. Yes, as we look around upon the Christian landscape, too many Christians are focusing their mindset in continuity with this adulterous and sinful generation. (coughs) Too many Christians are elevating their cultural, secular, 
humanistic agenda above union with Christ. They are marginalizing Christ's own mission and view of discipleship to a subordinate position for the sake of gender diversity, ethnic diversity, social, economic, and political systems that have no agreement with the teaching of Jesus and the Bible. Yes, Jesus and the Bible speaks of the true God creating providentially aspects of human diversity. But the believer must always see these aspects of human diversity organically in relationship with union in Christ. For example, there are only two genders, male and female but they are both organically understood correctly by being created by God as image bearers. And how does Jesus bring that together in the whole history of redemption? How does God bring that together? The diversity of male and female. What he brings them together is in terms of the bride and the bridegroom, Christ in the church. Christ in the church. Brought together the two genders are pictures of the eternal glory of Christ and the church. That's why homosexuality is such an abomination. It attacks the concept of bride and bridegroom in eternity. Well, perhaps there is no better verse in scripture that dissolves the true disciples' diverse self-affirmation of pride under the subject heading of being saved by Jesus Christ, yes, by being equally saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What verse is better to show that perhaps than Galatians chapter 3, verse 28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What did you leave at the door this morning in order to come into this building to worship Jesus in corporate love to each other? In order to enhance the corporate union and celebration 
of Christ's redemption for his body, the church. Think hard about that. Well, are you grasping the depths of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you truly penetrating the flow of Jesus' very direct conversation about connecting the reason for Christ coming in the world and the cost of being a follower of Jesus? Do you love him enough to deny yourself for the sake that he is Jesus who saves us from our sins. Do you love him enough that you will completely surrender and abandon yourself to a life of full commitment to his death and resurrection that propels you his powerful death and resurrection that propels you, yes, even each of us to take up our cross and follow him. Yes, follow our Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we all know in terms of our hearts that we fall short. But the command stands in which thou hast given in both of these cases, denying self, take up our cross and follow thee, we ask, we plead with thee that, our, that thou through thy spirit would put that mightily in our hearts. It is hard for us not to think of ourselves primarily. But we ask that through thy spirit you would crush the self in its pride, in its self-idolatry, in order that we would worship at the throne of our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.